Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas, all of them things to everyone listening to Talk Art. Uh, it's been a momentous year, 2020, and we're coming towards the end of it. And uh, it feels amazing to have been on this journey with all of you, right, Rob? Yeah, definitely. Happy holidays, everybody. It's been a really kind of challenging, tough, annoying, sad frustrating but also incredibly inspiring year because thank god for talk art for us i feel like we've spoken to so many interesting guests and um it really has kind of you know um brought brought kind of joy into our lives and hopefully the listeners too (laughs) absolutely and i think we've all realized through through all this that how much culture has really made a difference to everything and really connected us to fellow humans and how important culture is and i'm hoping going forwards that uh we won't ever or people won't take culture for granted because it really is the way that we really communicate uh, properly and get the message out and connect to our fellow humans and humanity yeah definitely and and this episode we chose for the christmas episode uh, it's coming out christmas eve because it was such a special conversation and it's almost 2 hours long and stephen fry is a total legend and mm. what a privilege to spend time with him chatting about saint art. saint stephen fry yes he just exactly. knows so much it's like he's too he's much so i think too so, much you know enjoy this like take yeah. your time you can always stop halfway through and the thing i'm going to take away Have from a it is pie that or a cup of tea exactly or something, yeah. i'm going to take away from this interview life is short people but art is long so exactly. enjoy Enjoy. Uh, Thank you very much for sticking with us, guys. And and here's to more episodes and have a fantastic Christmas with your loved ones, even though we might all be separated from them and have a great new year. And also 2021, we've got our book coming out. So much to look forward to. Um, (laughs) Yeah, everyone's looking forward to that. Series 129 or something. Yeah, Uh, there we go. So many talk art episodes. Lots of love, everyone. Bye. Bye. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm feeling like I have just shorn a sheep because I have <laughs> actually cut my cut my beard off today. Oh, and you look like a sheep. Yeah. No, because like honestly, it made me have memories of my sort of grandparents or something. I don't know who it was in my family. Were they that had sheep a farm. shearers? 
But right. yes, because they, they had a Welsh farm. And um, I was like, my beard was so <laughs> what, long. What did you, did you use shearers was, or did you just use a beard the, trimmer? It was the pandemic beard. And I actually had to use like scissors as well because it was just so long. Anyway, oh so I'm God, feeling very free and, Good. and a bit more in control because um, I think I just sort of, all the hair growing was making me feel really out of control for some reason. Um, and I went for a really long walk uh, yesterday by the sea and I was thinking mm. about today's guest and I was looking at all the sea markers which are kind of like wooden sticks and things and boys in the water which I guess mm. warn ships of you know don't come too close to shore and also this idea of lighthouses which I love of course and there is one you know that they call Mar- boys Mar- buoys in America buoys just to put it out there buoys that's what they say in okay America, so yeah. for everyone listening in America um, I saw some buoys and um, <laughs> yeah and I was thinking about lighthouses and then it sort of weirdly led on to the idea that the guest we're speaking to today has been a kind of beacon of light throughout my life oh. and he almost feels like a family member even though I've only met him about two or three times and mm-hmm. not never that long but I feel like I've known him so well for the whole of my life and mm-hmm. um, I remember listening to him a lot on the radio when I was growing up and he sort of brought a lot of confidence and comfort to me um and when he did the oscar wilde film in like 97 and also the cameo in spice world the movie which was just like a, <laughs> um clearly a career highlight <laughs> that um, changed your life yes it just changed my life but he also i used to get bullied at school and people used to call me oscar so they'd cough and go like oscar oscar like the whole time because i was like the gay guy at school and he actually played oscar wilde and somehow gave me strength thinking like it's okay there are other people like me out there in the world um mm. and you can have a kind of life after all of this bullying at school. So, yeah, I just have lots of love and admiration for him, and I'm very happy oh. that we're going to be having him on Talk Up today. Me too. So we would like to welcome... Stephen Fry. Well, that's the most beautiful introduction I've ever had, Robert. It made me slightly tear up. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, I'm here where I am, of course, but I'm here with you in uh, vocal and spirit sense, I hope. Where are you and in the you're world, by the Stephen? Si- yeah, I- I'm in Norfolk, on the uh, in oh, God's right. county of Norfolk, rural Norfolk. It's sunny and there's fresh air and I'm very lucky to be here. My mother lives not far away, my sister and brother as well. In fact, my whole family, really, my whole blood family, are, uh, are here in Norfolk. But of course, they might as well be in um, New York or Melbourne because anyway, yeah. uh, I can't see them. <laughs> but at least I know they're close should there be an emergency. Are they all Which, hooked up to Zoom and... FaceTiming, well, everyone okay with that? Maddeningly, I was about to uh, descend on my mother with a with a with a MacBook Air, which was all set up to to to, to enable her with a one button push. And she's not by any means stupid, but she's not sort of grown up in the technological world. And mm. uh, unfortunately, it happened just too late. the The lockdown came, and I, I, oh. it didn't uh, seem like a a good reason to travel no. 20 miles, really. So mm-hmm. uh, I phone. In, she's the only person I phone. I hate telephones. Um, I, I think we'll regard the period of 1870-odd uh, from Graham, Alexander Graham Bell's first phone call to, what, nine, uh, 2007, the arrival of the iPhone and the first smartphone revolution. We'll regard that period, which is um, 120, 30 years, as a blip in which we were forced to have these awful telephone conversations. And the beauty for me is text. We can talk about this when we talk about art, because obviously text became rather important in art in the 90s mm. and in various other periods in, in art's mm. history. But um, I, I can remember in the early days of the internet, 
when literally the only people I knew who were hooked onto the internet were fellow nerds like me. I'm talking about the 1980s. I'm talking about years before there was a World Wide Web or anything. When wow. It was, it was like ham radio, you know. It was a, you, you had, did you ever see that film War Games with Matthew Broderick? Do you remember the, the modem where you put the phone receiver into those mm. two rubber grommets? Do you remember? <laughs> no. and, and that was a modem. Anyway, um, and you were I would have this pioneer, Stephen. Yes, yeah, so, so I'd have these wonderful email conversations in the early email when it was just text, obviously ASCII text, as it was called, um, with these people in Spokane, Washington, or in in Moscow, or goodness knows Cape Town, wherever they might be. And I didn't know who they were, but we, we would have great conversations through email. And then sometimes the system would go down. You know, you, you had to write these modem scripts called interslip scripts in this you know particular modem language. And if what, it every failed, time you wanted to speak to someone, yeah. well, no, in order to get the modem to work, right. and then you could use email. But if they failed, you then have to phone them up properly by the old-fashioned method of talking to them. And the moment you did that, I found suddenly. All the fluency, the wit, the charm and the relaxation disappeared. Because when you can write, you can be ironic and self-deprecating and wise and insightful. But the moment you're in real-time telephone conversation with someone, all the hideous aspects of class, education, gender, race, upbringing, age, all come into play and there's self-consciousness descends. And it's mm. the thing, again, we can talk about with art, but as you know, Russell with acting, and as I'm sure Robert knows from all kinds of other ways, self-consciousness is usually, unless you're being very playful with it, the enemy of all art and all good performance. Um, mm. If you're suddenly looking down and seeing yourself or thinking how others are interpreting you, it all rather collapses. Other people watching you looking at the art. That's it. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. I think you've described it as the, an embarrassment of looking at art, of feeling slightly exposed. I did, and and yes, I did. I I'm, um, I, I gave a. It was the Royal Academy. I'm a trustee of the Royal Academy. It's a typical. It just shows. You see, all the cool artists are are the refusé, as the French used to call them, aren't they? They're the the ones who who are turned down by the Royal Academy and the great uh, academies, and uh, and who are outside um, the tent pissing in. And that, which is an artist's job. But there are the, the ones who get knighted, you know, Alfred Munnings and people like that who are the sort of, mm. who have tweed waistcoats and gold watches and, uh, and who look more like uh, rather prosperous yeoman farmers than artists. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's the tradition of the Royal Academy to some, though, of course, it's, I'm proud to say it's very different now and has changed enormously. In fact, our mutual friend Tracy is, uh, is a member, is an academician, I should say, not a oh. member. I was just going to say that because it's actually great how many women are, are now RAs yes. and they, they've kind of revolutionised and modernised what the RA was in a way. So it's, it's they, yeah, kind of become a place have. for more progressive artists maybe like Rebecca Warren is, a mem is an RA now as well the amazing Rose yes Queen, who's also in Norfolk actually same as you and and in fact Rebecca Salter is the president of the RA the first woman president yes yes exactly. yes Rebecca is and, yeah um yes and they asked uh, me to, for one of the summer dinners they asked me to make a speech and uh, and so I made a speech about that about the embarrassment of being in uh, an art gallery looking at pictures with a friend if you're on your own, it's fine because you can be silent. 
Mm-hmm. But there's something very embarrassing about being with a friend, especially if right, you yeah. supposedly know a bit about art. I mean, I did do it as an A-level, which is hardly knowing about art, but, you know, so I can kind of talk the talk about Brunelleschi and perspective or something, and you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and if, someone, if you overhear people talking about a picture when they're looking at it, you always want to slap them in the face because they're either showing <laughs> off or talking rubbish. Because anything you say about, for example, a painting, we'll stick with painting for the time being, Every, anything you say about a painting is superfluous because the painter painted it, they didn't speak it. You know, it's, it's, it's what it is as an image. And if, yeah. if you could express it as a paragraph, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't be a painting. It would be much less than a painting. Words right, right. are good at telling a story in a certain way, in time usually, in a linear way, but a picture holds an image in front of you, and that's what it is. And a- anything you say about it might be informative and biographical, it, it might shed some light on, on, on it as you look at it, but it's mm. really about that engagement and nothing else, that that's how it speaks through line and colour and form and pattern and all the rest of it. And but then language, the thing with that is, Stephen, is that, is that people need the confidence to be able to walk in and just allow themselves to look at that work. And I yeah. know that there's an artist who's like 103 who Russell's obsessed with called Carmen Herrera. And she says that you can't really talk about art, even though we're mm. doing a podcast talking about art. Yes. <laughs> but, but I think what I've realised from being a you gallerist is art, you have to kind of encourage idea. people yeah. to have the confidence and to let go of their insecurities to be able to get to the point of just looking at yes. a painting or a sculpture and then, it, and then thinking about that rather than needing an explanation or a wall text or so on very true and alan bennett said a very wise thing in um i can't remember where i'm uh, it was one of his diaries i think um Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, i think a trustee or or something of the national gallery isn't he and he Mm -hmm. said uh, he said i thought they should have on the entablature and on the top of it as you walk in you don't have to like everything yeah. And it's, it's so, so important. That, yeah. And, of course, Alan typically yeah. puts himself in the position, I guess, of his parents, of slightly shy, mm. insecure people who go into a great temple of the arts and assume that everything's a masterpiece and even things that are said to be masterpieces. I don't know, in the national, the famous ones like the Arnolfini marriage or the, yes. um, you know, the Rembrandt self-portraits. You're allowed, I mean, it's pointless to do it just to be bloody-minded, but you're allowed to say, actually, I... I really, that's not the one I like. I like this one. If, if you can just feel free to respond. It's permission, respond. isn't it, to be, exactly. for your own, to be your own yeah. emotions, to be valid. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a snobbery, there's a glamour about famous art and famous artists that it's a bit like being introduced to a duke when you first look at, you know, the, the Night Watch and the Rijksmuseum or you first look at the Sunflowers by Van Gogh, you, you know, you first see them. It is like being introduced to a film star or a glamorous celebrity. You feel right. in awe because there's the reputation and the, 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 this kind of sense that they are important with a capital I, yeah, that they're right. important to the world. Why should they be important Well, I mean, when you go and people go and see the Mona Lisa or people go and see Guernica, it's that yeah. sort of thing you've heard about. I mean, if you, you see a Van Gogh painting in the flesh, we hear so much about Van Gogh that when you actually stand in front of it, then you're like, yeah. oh, my God, that's actually... That's the real thing. Wow. This, yeah. you are here been, it's, it's this whole uh, folklore about these That's artworks. It. Iconic, and, and in, like, yeah. like religion. 
And it means you, you tend to respond to the ones that don't have that heavy weight of baggage. So yes. if you go to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, which is a beautiful, wonderful, beautifully arranged museum, you tend to find yourself staring at the, um, the peach blossom paintings, the very pretty early-ish ones, because they're not the ones with crows in a field that are so dark and famous and, and you almost can't look because you had a poster yeah. of it when you were a teenager and you, yeah. you oh know you're God, a bit sort so of true. so you look at something else by him and go oh what a relief that's so pretty and so charming yes. and look yes. it's like you know and you you're free to look at it and it, it isn't freighted with all that all that weight i think yeah i have that with the rothko effect it's the same mm. like with the rothko I mean, I mean, you've been told so many times you're going to sit in front of it and cry and it's so emotional that when you do sit in front of one i'm like come on in Where's this yes. feeling that I've been told about? And you feel slightly, like, yeah, encumbered with art history's, like, yeah. st- like, pressure on you to feel affected by it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I went, to, um, I went to Norway and saw Edvard Munch's museum, and um, they had a series of screen prints, and it was um, Carl Ove, the writer, what's his surname? Oh, I know who you mean, yes, who's incredibly... Um, um, uh, yeah, he's almost like yeah. the Proust of today, isn't he? Proust of That's right. He, 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 um, people adore him. Canalsgaard. Carl Ove Canalsgaard. Um, it was an exhibition curated by him, and he included loads of um, prints, like lithographs and screen prints, or probably just lithographs, I'm not sure, that, that Monk had made. And they were so incredible. And even though they yeah. weren't paintings, they were the thing that I left, Keep I keep thinking about them. Like, they're really, really impressive because you've never works. seen them before as well. It's like these ones yeah, that you, you're used to seeing so many images of these artists reproduced and whenever they're in articles that these obscure ones become yep. fresh suddenly, don't they? Yeah. Absolutely. I thought that when I went to see Jasper John's uh, exhibition of his uh, little sculptures. I thought they were just such oh. a release because I knew his paintings and, you know, his other bigger works had been yes, so... Yes, yes. Um, you know, I'd, I'd seen so many of them at some need to see it. it's like seeing another side of a of an artist and it, it, it releases you from all that uh, expectation again and there's less kind of fetish on them as well i feel like certain artworks are so fetishized and so like they almost become like religious iconography or something and it just has so much pressure with it that i guess yeah. in a way there's there's less access for you to put your own experience into it or something that's right i think i think it's true i mean it, it it's also, of course, but you know what. Having said all that, there are moments. It's called um, Stendhal syndrome, I think, isn't it? Where uh, it, and the Japanese people seem to uh, experience this much more than we do. Although mm. I have had it. I think it's um, Stendhal himself either describes someone doing it or he did it, where he fainted when he saw a picture that he'd heard about all his life and finally got really? to see it. Yeah, I love and, that. I've never um, even heard of that. Yes, Japanese people coming to the Louvre regularly faint. I mean, there, there's a kind of procedure for doing it. It's a bit like, um, Russell probably knows this, at the Globe in Shakespeare people faint a lot, but I think that's the groundlings. That's just it, from the maybe seating, a, though, isn't it? I, yeah. Well, it, or the standing, <laughs> something with bend, bending your neck up, but, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. enough like physical for exhaustion. Their, yes, it's enough for there to be St. St John's ambulance people with stretchers at every... Globe performance and similarly really? at the Louvre they that. have yeah they have people standing by for the fainting Koreans and uh, Japanese particularly people from the east it seems have this thing I've called Stendhal syndrome it's free, yeah, so the sort of thing you genius. do Rob you would do I, I, I'm going to start doing this <laughs> you're going to start why, painting why, at every art gallery why now why yeah. no one told me I'm going to go <laughs> I'm going to look it up your now. trademark Jimmy. yes 
Stunned I'm doll. making a new film. It's going to be me, like, fainting in front of Just the great painting. Just fainting in front of different paintings. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Stendhal syndrome. Here we are. Let me describe it. This is Wikipedia, yeah. so I'm allowed to say it. Stendhal syndrome, <laughs> or Florence syndrome, is a psychosomatic condition involving rapid heartbeat, fainting, confusion, and even hallucinations allegedly occurring when individuals become exposed to objects or phenomena of great beauty. Uh, the affliction is named after Stendhal, who described his experience of the phenomenon during his 1817 visit to Florence in his book Naples and Florence, when he visited the Basilica of Santa Croce, where uh, Machiavelli, Michelangelo and uh, uh, Galileo Galilei are buried. He was overcome with profound emotion. He wrote, I was in a sort of ecstasy from the idea of being in Florence, close to the great men whose tombs I had seen. Absorbed in the contemplation of sublime beauty, I reached the point where one encounters celestial sensations. Everything spoke so vividly to my soul. I had palpitations of the heart, what in Berlin they call nerves. Life was drained from me. I walked with the fear of failing and fainting. There you go. Um, wow. So, yeah, the, the, uh, the staff at uh, the Santa Maria Nuova Hospital in Florence and in the uh, Uffizi, apparently it says here, are accustomed tourists suffering from dizzy spells or disorientation after viewing the Statue of David and other artworks of similar um, fame. So this is like the best moment but is David of got our the podcast leaf? ever. Yes. Is no, David, David got is the fig leaf. It's fig no, he's, he's okay. fig leaf. You know, he has his uh, he is fully, fully, yes, he's got his bits So, Stephen, <laughs> talking yeah. about the great paintings, I heard mm. that there's a Velasquez, a Velasquez painting that you really respect <laughs> and admire um, of yes. the Pope, Pope Innocent X. The yes, right. It, yes, I mean, it was one of my favourite paintings when I was a teenager. I think I, I saw it and I was just so dazzled by the... Uh, the painterliness of it, you know, the fact that uh, Velasquez was a very energetic painter, although because in books he's... Because what I'm sure you've talked about this. I, I think I did hear you mentioning this subject. It's such an important one with paintings in particular and sculptures, is scale. Um, if, 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 if everything's reduced in a book, it means mm. the... The resolution is tighter and and so on. You don't you're far less likely to see a brushstroke if it is a, a mm -hmm. painterly work. And I'd seen it because I think it's in the um, uh, the Gombrich story of art, for example. So right, which right. is one of the most famous sort of introductory works on art, isn't it, on the Western canon? That's your touchstone and, book, isn't it? Yeah, got exactly. You into it. Yeah. It is, exactly. And uh, though when you see the thing at its actual size, you suddenly see, literally, you see the sable hair um, uh, and its mark in the white, particularly the white strokes he makes in the lap of this red silken dress that the Pope is wearing. Uh, and um, I was so startled by that, by the fact that I was suddenly in the presence of Velasquez himself because I could feel him... I could feel his arms go backwards and forwards. I could see yeah. the way he'd rendered it. And yet, oh, gee, wow. the, yeah, and the old cliche, of course, if you took then 10 steps backwards, it, it resolved into a perfect sheen of, of, of shimmering satin and, and silk and, and so on. And, mm. and, and then you'd go back up close to it again. And so you were sort of present at the process somehow. Plus, 
the glaring eyes of this totally corrupt-looking churchman. You know, he looks <laughs> such a beast with his and and his hands are clawing at the arms of the throne he's sitting on. You could sort of see the he's just sitting there shaking, saying, "Get on with it." You know, There's actually a got, comment you made though about about his right hand and about how it does look kind of because the, the left hand is very um, like holding his his chair and kind of in you know holding the power somehow, but then yes. his right hand has this kind of sense of ease and kind That's of relaxed right. and it's and you said something limp. that only real power can be so at ease and it really That's struck right. me that comment i was like yes, it's so I true though i'd said that that is isn't it's it? so yeah. true and it's such an amazing yeah. thing when you think about that looking at that painting because you know but, he is the pope i mean you can't get bigger <laughs> it's a funny <laughs> thing about uh, I mean, I always look for letters and language about things. It's completely irrelevant, but the letter V um, happens to be interesting. But uh, in, in this case, it could be Velasquez. But um, I was thinking when I was writing an autobiography, I was thinking about the extraordinary privilege of being in a comedy scene with mm. Rick Mayo and Rowan Atkinson, two R's. And I was trying to think how to explain the joy of watching two people being comic geniuses in completely different ways. Mm. And then it struck me that you could look at it because it was an aesthetic. With with Rowan, he is a, a, a shy, charming, intelligent, sweet-natured, very wise man. I'm lucky to call him a friend. And um, But his, his characters, whether it's Mr Bean or Blackadder or whatever it might be, they sort of grow out of him a, like an alien being, a created, shaped thing. Whereas with Lick... Rick was Rick, and when he performed, he was just Rick magnified. He just right. blew up into an even bigger version Exaggerated of Exaggerated version, yeah. yeah. So those, and they're two different aesthetics, two different ways of getting at a, a kind of great comic, comic performance. One is, a, is an achieved performance that's, you know, just a, a shaped thing, and the other is yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And then I thought the two V's in Vermeer and Van Gogh are a perfect example because they're both kind of Dutch, essentially, and, <laughs> um, and they both begin with V, and they both represent the truth, but in completely different ways. Right. And, you, and, and it, it's the fact there is no right way to do it. And, and I used to be sort of confused about this. I used to think, well, surely one of them has found the answer. The answer is to build up slowly with uh, in incredible care uh, a picture of reality in the way that Vermeer does, or is the right way to do it from a frenzy of light and shade and anger and beauty and love and all the things that Van Gogh does? Well, of course, the... It isn't a question of which is right or wrong, and it's again like acting. And um, it was put into my head when I heard Orson Welles being interviewed by, I think, by Alan Yentop all those years ago, and um, or maybe it was on Parkinson. And uh, Parkinson said, uh, "You don't do. You, what do you think of all this naturalism that Marlon Brando and all that generation? Um, and do you think it's it's more?" You know, it's the, that their realism is is the way forward. And uh, Orson Welles said, "I've never been interested in realism. I've only been interested in truth." He said, "If an actor can convey the truth, that surely is all that matters." He said, "You can look at James Cagney and say I've never seen anybody walk like that in real life or talk like that in real life, but there is never a second when he isn't truthful." 
So wow. it doesn't matter whether you mumble and are detailed and are realistic. You can be realistic and untruthful. And you can be you can be artificial and truthful. And and I and I I thought that's a very profound and important point about aesthetics generally, isn't it? It's yes. it, it's not that the, the the treatment is the is the key. It's the what comes true. It's how you how the truth shines through. How the reality not reality even, but the truth of a moment. The honesty, the authenticity. Yeah. yeah, the authenticity. Of, yeah. All of yes. that exactly. Yeah. It might be someone like Vermeer painstakingly doing it over months and months and months with the tiniest hair brush imaginable uh, is as truthful as uh, something that took Van Gogh an extraordinary frenzied half hour to create. That's, right. that's what's thrilling about art is that you can have both and you don't have to reject one. Yes. Wow. And you said about the personality of this, this Pope in the Velasquez, uh, Pope mm. Innocent X. So that went on to inspire Bacon with the famous screaming yes. uh, Pope yes, he, uh, portraits. Right. And yeah. then you can actually see, because the personality you're describing this guy's face is really angry. And like, yes, he's, he's well, they screaming, call the Bacon like, one the screaming this. Pope, don't they? The screaming, screaming Pope, pope yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... And also he changes the colour from scarlet, which is in the Velasquez painting, and then he goes to this kind of very robes. royal rich purple. So it's yes, a kind of... Yes. That, that in itself, that colour change is a, such a massive shift. Yeah. And, and it is true. I mean, um, I, I, I think... Do you, are you aware of the art critic David Sylvester? Yes. Um, do you know who I mean by him? He, he yeah, was yeah, the great yeah. champion of Bacon and, and of right. Giacometti, in fact. Those were his two, the two that he kind of made into stars in the artistic firmament. And he was exactly. a, a wonderful big uh, figure, um, a very funny chap. And I, I met him a, a few times and I was lucky enough to meet uh, and know a bit uh, Francis Bacon too. I'm Did happy. you? So what yeah, was that well, like? How, how and... What? Well, I occasionally used to pop into the colony, and then, and which is where I first met him, which was this uh, sort of after hours, or and indeed before hours and between hours, drinking club in Soho. And then, uh, much more my style, unfortunately, was the Groucho Club, as you can imagine, and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of media watering, watering hole. But um, Francis used to come occasionally as well. Uh, he said a very wow. wise thing to me once, which I've never forgotten. Uh, we were in the Groucho Club. There was Andrew Birch, who's an art writer, and Gilbert uh -huh. and George were there, and oh Francis and myself. And we were drinking away, and Francis had ordered a bottle of champagne. And Liam Carson, who was the manager of the Groucho at the time, sadly departed since, um, it was just about to start a lock-up. Uh, and he said, come on, gentlemen, we can stay and drink and drink. And so this was already about two o'clock in the morning and I said actually I've, I've, I've got to go I'm afraid I can't I can't and um, Gil Gilbert or George said oh don't be a cunt darling you stay a drink don't be stupid <laughs> and, uh, and I said no I said no no really I, I, I have to go I, I, I really do and and Francis said to me, you've got a little man, haven't you? And I said, no, I'm, I'm single. He said, no, no, darling, I don't mean that. I said, in your head, you've got a little man who tells you when you've got to, when you've got to work tomorrow. I said, well, actually, I said, that is true. He said, I've got a little man. He said, um, he said all my friend Patrick Mint and all those sort of people, um, you know, they, um, uh, they didn't have a little man and they died because they never had a little man and they drowned. He said, um, I, sometimes I, I, I go out on the lash, I get very, very drunk and I drink for days and days. And then my little man says, no, Francis, studio. 
And the next morning I'm up there and I'm clean and I'm working and I'm working and I'm working. He said, you don't let that little man drown ever. You keep him alive. I, and, and I thought oh that was God. fascinating. John Minton, I mean, and, and John, yeah, Minton, John Minton. Yeah. John Minton. Sorry, we have to yeah. tell and, Mark Gatiss this because Mark Mark just made a documentary about John Minton. Oh yes, and he came yeah, on talk just... Yeah, but but oh, that's just... fascinating. He would love that story. It, yeah, it is rather good, isn't it? Because there was a whole generation, and the way Francis put it, with typical modesty, was that he was no more talented than any other member of that group of uh, photographers and writers and uh, poets and painters who uh, flocked to Soho in the forties mm, yeah. and fifties. But that he was the one who had the little man who just that got him working, like but, a little um, moral compass for him, with himself. Yeah. The the other the one that David Sylvester told me that I rather liked was uh, um, Francis Partridge, who was uh, who lived to about a hundred and three, like Carmen, your your uh, hero, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, she was the last remaining Bloomsburyite that I uh, that I had, again had the good fortune to meet, and uh, wow. um, I was talking about her to David Sylvester, who said. Um, he said, yes, I tried to persuade her to like Francis Bacon. I said, you two Francises should get together. She said, well, I, I think he's a very talented boy, but um, could you just pass a message to, 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 to him from me? Uh, can't he just for once in a while paint some flowers? And <laughs> <laughs> so, so David, David went to Francis with Bacon. no irony, no irony. Yeah, no <laughs> irony. She just well, thought right, it would right. be nice if he painted some flowers. Something so pretty. Yeah. So, so David went to to Francis and said, uh, "Francis Partridge thinks you should paint some flowers." And Bacon gave her a look with that big moon face, gave her a mm -hmm. big grin, and said, "Yes, fly flowers." He said, "How wonderfully they die and rot." <laughs> <laughs> so he 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 said he'd go off to paint her some some dying flowers. Oh my God! What was he like though? What was he like? Was he because to me he comes across as quite scary and quite intimidating. He, I, I I mean I I certainly was pretty much in awe of him. But we developed a little game which uh, I try and do with all uh, I say all but the few great artists I've managed to meet, which is to try and trap them into drawing something for you. So he would say, <laughs> "Have you seen? <laughs> have, you seen <laughs> have you seen that? That's exhibition? a good game. I like that. Yes. That's it. So he'd say something about their being an exhibition of I know someone's paintings in uh, the Marlborough Gallery, and you go, "Where's Where's the Marlborough Gallery?" And they go, "You know, dear, it's in um, it's in Albemarle Street, or it is in uh, Cork Street, or something." And you go, oh, "Which one's Cork Street?" And then you'd start doing it. There's Piccadilly, and then you'd hand it to them, and you go, "What are you there?" And they'd do a line, and then and then mm. he'd always just hand it to me, and then rip it up in front of my eyes. <laughs> Go, oh no, you don't! <laughs> so you never got the you never got the sketch, the direction sketch. No, 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 I never did. Exactly. Well, who else have you played that game with then? Who else? I was going to say. One? Who else? David Hockney. I did. <gasps> I did. I did uh, I, we. He was described being a mutual friend, and I said, "What did they look like?" <laughs> very clever he said, well, he said quite well quite quite fat you know or he was quite fat with them um, i said what sort of and then i'd start to draw and he'd say oh like this like this i'd go oh wonderful and i'd reach my hand over he'd go oh no you don't <laughs> but uh, but david has been very kind at sending me his ipad pictures which are remarkable oh, i'm great. sure you've seen oh. them he's been doing some in he did them in um 
uh, in East Yorkshire, in, in Bridlington. He started yeah. to do them when, really, when the iPad was still quite new, about, mm-hmm. I don't know, eight, nine, ten years ago. Um, and uh, they, they were wonderful uh, views through woods, just of... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they, I, they, they, they proved a point that I'd always... That I'd realised in the early days of computing, I mentioned how I was a, you know, a sort of real nerd when it came to the early days of the internet, and before that, with computing generally. So there used to be a thing called pixel paint, which was the then turned yeah. into it turned into Photoshop, and uh, um, there were various other things like that. And you could get a Wacom tablet, and I, <clears throat> I remember getting the Wacom tablet, incredibly expensive. It was about £7,000 or something. It was ridiculous. Uh, With a stylus and this software and a big screen. And this was in the mid-'80s when all this was very... uh, And I was thinking, right, and then (laughs) I had the pen on the stylus. The stylus on on the tablet, rather, on the Wacom tablet. And then I looked at the screen and then I suddenly said, yeah, but the one thing is, Stephen, is you can't draw. (laughs) <laughs> you can't draw and you can't colour in. And what use is this technology to you? It's like saying to someone, here's a word processor, now you can write great expectations. It's yes. pointless. You've got yeah. to have the talent. It's no good. <laughs> oh, no. And so when you see, there's David Hockney with his finger on the screen of an iPad doing right. the thing that David Hockney can do. Very pretty, very mm. charming. I mean, it's not to everyone's taste, but uh, let's face it, he is certainly a skilled draftsman and a mm, master colourist. So he just emails these to you, does he, on the regular? He, he does, has a whole list of friends that he emails to, and sometimes I'm on the list and sometimes not, but I've got a whole load of them. He particularly was annoyed that I gave up smoking, and so he would always do little drawings of ashtrays for me. Uh, on his, <laughs> <laughs> of a full ashtray, because he'd say, "Oh, did he, I heard him once on the Today program with with an anti-smoker, and this anti-smoker was just embarking on their speech." <laughs> and Hockney said, "Excuse me, excuse me, I just wonder if you know how dreary you sound." <laughs> I just thought that's such a Hockney word, dreary. dreary and, yeah. and actually, it's a perfect word for Hockney because it is the enemy word of, of that kind of artist. He was born in Bradford when it was a grey, dreary place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a much better place now, but it was everything he wanted was to escape, like so many generations of British artists, poets and writers, to sunlight away from the blackness, the darkness, the greyness, the misery, the the miserable attitude as much as the miserable weather, the leaden, Mm -hmm. oppressive skies and the leaden, oppressive people. He wanted to get out of that, and so he went to, you know, Mulholland Drive and the the sunshine of uh, Los Angeles and uh, to the south of France and to all the places where the bright colours were. And, and, And what he had in his head as what he was escaping was the dreary dreariness and so I thought true. that was it is isn't it it is yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There's a, I, I read an interview with him the other week um and he was saying that he'd had two or three doctors in his life that were constantly trying to make him quit smoking and I think mm-hmm. at one point he even had a heart attack maybe and he was like where are those doctors now they're all dead and I'm <laughs> still dead. alive and I was like you go David I mean it's just the most brilliant wit and yeah, is, does today. not yeah. give a damn and that's actually yeah. something I've heard you describe uh, a meeting with Damien Hurst as being it, also at the Groucho, actually, was this idea yeah. that artists don't really care what people think. And that's yes, kind of and what you have to have to be an artist. It, 
It's why I've always known I couldn't be an artist, aside from not having any talent at the plastic arts as such. I mean, I'm sure I could have had a certain amount of excitement about creating things in video or possibly, you know, in, if I'd been born t 20 years later, maybe, and conceptual art, I could have had some excitement in trying to build and construct things that were art pieces. But I knew that inside, I'm an entertainer. I want right. to, to delight people and to please people. Uh, and it's sometimes a little bit of provocation, a little bit of shocking, a little bit of this and that is part of the pleasure of, of, uh, of getting a, a response from an audience, if you like. But mm. uh, all the artists I know, and they're of incredibly different kinds, whether it's, you know, the, a kind like Maggie Hambling, who's a very dear friend I've known for years and years, or whether it's Damien and Tracy and that, that generation, um, they all have a kind of clarity of purpose and a, a focus and a, and a lack of concern about whether other people are going to get what they're doing or be pleased by it or what they might even be attacked for it or be called pretentious or, you know, and I'm just, I have this pathetic desire to please all the time. It's, it's a deep psychological part of me and I'm enough used to it not to care. Um, uh, and after all, artists need people to admire them and I'm happy to be that person <laughs> rather than the artist. <laughs> but, you know, if... If there is a difference between, you know, and we, we somehow intuit it, a difference between art with a capital A and entertainment, whether it's like the graphic arts and pop culture and so on, there is somehow, you know when, you, when you're in front of it, there is something that is art and it's quite hard to, to know, but sometimes it is just simply that it is confident to be itself without explanation without yeah. pleading without asking to be liked without compromise and is very happy to leap out of the screen and bite the patron's hand that has paid for it um in the way that artists do they're ornery mm. cusses um that's one they're thing what, we need what? them ornery i think it's a good american word is ornery you know they're, they're sort of you know they're, they're just they're, they're not what's a Good definition of the word ornery. Uh, well, honorary, not honorary, though. Spell no, ornery. O-R-N-E-R-Y. Ornery. ornery. I don't know that. Or, do you not know the word ornery? Ornery. No, I've never ornery. heard of it. I will look it up now in the dictionary. Yeah, and give look you a it up, yes. uh, Ornery. Um, difficult to deal with, <laughs> it says here. Oh, North right, American okay. informal. An ornery old miracle man. Yes, bad-tempered. A variant of ordinary, apparently. That's the origin of it. I didn't know that that's true. Anyway, he's a really ornery figure. Cussed is another word, I guess. Cussed. He's a cussed I don't know figure. that one either. I like that. Ornery no. <laughs> and cussed. There we go. Let's look up cussed. What does it say for cussed in the dictionary? Um, annoying, awkward. Why do you have to be so cussed? Yeah. <laughs> he was certainly an unsociable cuss. Um, so, yes, a cussed. <laughs> anyway, that's what artists are. <laughs> ornery and cussed. <laughs> ornery cussed. Ornery cussed. There is something about the boldness of, of artists, particularly actually that YBA generation, that kind of certainty yeah, yes. and self-confidence they had. And, you know, the, yeah. the kind of boldness of like Tracy putting the bed in a gallery or, or yeah. Damien Hirst, you know, putting a pill cabinet. Up. A, I don't know. Yeah, there was something about it that was so visionary about yes. it at the same time. There's a lovely... Of vision. When, um, uh, do, do you remember, uh, I think it's called The Idea of Death in the Mind of Someone Living? Yeah, the shark, the, uh, yeah. The impossibility. Oh, no, that's the shark. 
Oh, that's the shark. I mean, then, yeah. what's the one that was the sheep's head with the maggots and the flies and the two? Oh, I love uh, that one. Amazing piece. Yeah, that's um, one of the early with the, ones, with the fly zapper, so it'd have a whole like yes. ecological system. That's right. Going there was on a, in there. It was a whole. Yes. Yeah. Um, Francis Bacon asked to be alone with that when he was dying, which I think is one of the most beautiful stories I know of contemporary art. He he asked uh, Jay Jopling. Um, if if he could, it was just about to be the sensation show, I think. So it was probably yeah. already installed at at the, the, uh, at the Academy, uh, yeah. or the, oh. the being at the Saatchi Gallery was about to go to the uh, Royal Academy. And so he oh. said, before it goes, can I sit with it for for, for most of the day? Wow. And of course, Jay and, and Damien were thrilled. And it was called a thousand a, years. That's it. A thousand a dying, years, which is also a, a beautiful title to go and sit with an artwork. I mean, yes. It, <laughs> Damien's yeah, gift of titling is pretty amazing, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just think and that that image of, well. of yes, oh, cow's head. Sorry, the the dying, the dying Francis Bacon, Bacon staring, sat there with uh, that. Uh, like yeah. out of all the works he could spend, yeah. like his last four days on earth with. That's so evocative and kind of translates to his own style, doesn't it? In some ways, yeah. Yes. It's all like wow. birth, birth and death, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it is. it's like the yeah. whole life cycle. Because you can hear the noise when the flies are getting zapped and then oh, they yes. go and lay eggs oh. and then the eggs hatch and then yeah, the, the flies maggots. all come out. But sometimes the flies got out and people were like, how did these flies yes. get the... <laughs> Get out of here. This is all sealed. It was very strange because they would appear all over the place. So how how did you get into art, Stephen? What was your sort of route in? You, you said you took history of art school and then you just said uh, a book by Ernst Gombrich, which meant a lot to you. How did that mm. play into your kind of upbringing? Um, I, I grew up here in this county of Norfolk. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a good phrase, Sidney Smith, the uh, 19th century wit, was once uh, moved to, I think in his case it was Yorkshire, um, by his bishop. He was, a, he was a divine, as they used to call them in the 19th century, i.e. a parson. And he was moved to this country living, having been in Belgravia or something, where he was a very witty and brilliant writer and, uh, and happened to be a parson as well. And he wrote a letter to someone saying, you ask what it's like here in the country, I think I can best answer that question by saying, I am simply miles from the nearest lemon. <laughs> and I grew up miles from the nearest lemon and miles from the nearest shop and miles from the nearest anything. So all I had was my parents' books. Um, and in, in that sense, and churches nearby. And so... I developed a visual language of churches and stained glass windows and mm. of the the art books my parents had and going into Norwich was Norwich Castle Museum so that, and they had a few constables and a few, you know they still have some some good artworks there and so it it was and a, some exhibitions and so I just used to it was just something to make life more interesting because I wasn't a young farmer there were those around who would just go on hay balers all the time and be rural and although I quite liked the countryside I didn't like it as a in a farming and agricultural way uh -huh. uh, and I yearned for contact with something so there was books and I was one of the great influences early on was Oscar Wilde and uh, uh, and he of course had friends who were painters there's a marvellous painting by Frith 
called the um, opening of the summer exhibition to the Royal Academy. Do you mm-hmm. know it? It's a, it's a fantastic painting of this hugely crowded great room at Burlington House, the, the Royal Academy, mm-hmm. and in the centre of it is Oscar Wilde with, a, with an orchid in his button, buttonhole looking at a picture. And I oh, wow. have since collected a few letters that Wilde wrote to people. Um, wow. And, uh, in, in, and in, in two of them, he says, it's his way of signing off, it has been too long. Let us soon, for God's sake, go and look at pictures together. And that was, and and I I love that phrase, go and look at pictures together. And and, and it it was one of the things that he did, and he wrote about art brilliantly. And so he was, and he was greatly influenced by Walter Pater. You couldn't have done that though, Stephen, you know that, because you'd have been embarrassed. Yeah, see, I would have together. You'd, have been, you'd have had to exactly. turn him down. You only got to go stop by yourself. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I would. But I, I then became just so interested and curious about the whole business of pictures and mm. and the extraordinary moment, which still fascinates me. I say moment; it's obviously a more than one moment, but it is a relatively short space of time between the end of what you might call the figurative, representative, assured, comfortable world of art and painting and modernism, the fractured, fragmented, conceptual, um, deliberately confused and confusing uh, turning that all art took, not just the the visual arts, but but music too, in, in terms of classical music, you know, from Wagner to Stravinsky. Um, and from Stravinsky to Schoenberg and Stockhausen, and from painting from, you know, from Cezanne to Matisse, and suddenly Picasso and Braque, and then uh, and then the breaking of the image, the fracturing, uh, and it, 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 you know, there are ways of explaining it in an academic sense. You could say that it also coincides with Freud taking the conscious steering self out of out of the human psyche and replacing it with a, an unknowable subconscious that was driving uh, impulses and, and behaviours beyond our conscious ability. So that the subject, you know, the, the, the controlling steering wheel of the self was thrown away. And uh, at the same time, Einstein was taking, taking out a, 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 a mechanical stability out of the universe. And um, so you could sort of argue that Everything was up for grabs. Technology was suddenly exploding with telephones and. and Do you think and, it's the invention of photography as well, with the and photography on obviously to be, for, to be real yeah. to show realism in painting anymore? Yeah, in portraiture it was, or whatever was like it's, it's there. So that's certainly a, a sound argument. It's, it makes sense, doesn't it, that there was no longer a need for painting to be a register and record of how people looked and how things it's a big were. To be photorealistic, yeah. Yeah, so there was a it could go off in other directions, um, and 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 it is a. It's funny that we still use the word modernist of something that is well over a hundred years old now. Yeah. You could say you know that modernism mm. started um, because you know there's a greater gap between us and and modernism, uh, and modernism and Turner. 
mm. you know and yet and, and and you know we still say modernist because it is it, the world just changed didn't it and and, we, and and technology of course electricity came at the same time uh, so electricity relativism and then obviously the first world war through all kinds of certainty and political hierarchies were were thrown out as well and whether the art came first and and the politics and society disintegrated you know, our artists, the visionaries who see it coming and, and indeed might even be partly responsible for it. Mm. Certainly Shelley, um, in his case, thinking of poetry, he, he said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Wow, that they, yeah. they find the laws of, of the, you know, and, and they, they describe the world as it is. And politicians can't do that. Artists can. Um, and they're never thanked for it, of course, because if <clears throat> if Picasso and Braque and uh, and Matisse and and others showed that the world was was fragmented and disintegrated mm. and unknowable and was facades of and angles and there was no true perspective and no solid sound Victorian grounded truth in an image, it had to be broken up to try and explain what it was. Mm. They were never thanked for it, but of course they were right, and. Mm. History has vindicated it. And if you look at what the bourgeois tabloids said about Picasso, they said exactly the same about Tracy and Sarah and, uh, and Damien and the YBAs, the same, mm. same language, the same mm. kind of, oh, so tiresome, are we supposed to? Oh, so people die, do they? I think we knew that. You know, mm. it's kind of <laughs> the point. But that's about, the thing, isn't it? I think art is always ahead of the game, and they yes. say that, don't they? That people are before their time or something. But they are. but I think that yeah. is actually the difference between entertainment, which often does have success in its, you know, in and of its time, whereas art often gets discovered at a later point, which is why you're getting so many yeah. older artists constantly discovered these days. <laughs> yeah, and entertainment, as I will, dates horribly. <laughs> it dates, and it's, <laughs> I think it you're is... very timeless. <laughs> Jeeves and Worcester forever. <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> but but it, you know um, the the old Latin tag is uh, okay. uh, um, vita brevis ars longa. Uh, life is short, art is long. And that's uh, true. Art, and, and there's forever. enormous art's truth in that. And it's what you sometimes it? yeah. want to say to the tyrants of the day, the politicians. You want to say to Boris and Trump and all these kind of figures. You know, you will be. So forgotten. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I'm sure if you're sensible, you'll know this. But a lot of businessmen and uh, powerful people d think that they are important. But compared to artists, historically, they never are. Can you, you know, how many great businessmen of the 19th century can you, can you name? You, mm -hmm. can, you can name a few visionary engineers and inventors, obviously, but you can name... Mm dozens and dozens and dozens of artists and writers and poets from that period. They last. We, we, we consult them. We don't consult financiers and politicians. They're just dreary recitation of dates. Robert Peel was once the most powerful man in the world. And now no one knows who Robert Peel was, really, except people who happened to be studying that particular period of history. Similarly, Lord Salisbury, he was a gigantic titan of a figure in the 1890s, much more important than Oscar Wilde and, you know, other people of the 90s, yeah. Aubrey Beardsley, whatever. And now, Lord Salisbury, who the hell was he? He was just a beard. 
You know? <laughs> and that's the, the revenge of art, which makes me chuckle with delight, I have to say. <laughs> but as a lot of artists say, what has posterity ever done for me? That's the problem. <laughs> a lot of artists want their success while they're alive, not after they're dead. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are some people that get remembered a bit like we were talking about the um, Pope Innocent the tents, mm. you know, we remember him because of the painting. So if we Absolutely. think about you being remembered, um, I know that you've been painted yourself, A, by zillions of fans around the world, if you Google Stephen Fry, <laughs> a lot of yes. hilarious and uh, interesting works of yeah, art uh, with yeah. your image. But one that I really loved is the friend that you mentioned earlier, Maggie Hambling, which is in the National Portrait Gallery. Um, yes. Um, can you talk about that whole process? What was it like being a sitter for an artwork? That it, it, it was actually wonderful. It was at a time in my life when I was quite a naughty boy. So, you know, she'd asked, you know, come along at 10 in the morning, she'd say, which to me was like <laughs> saying, come along at five in the morning. I thought, 10 in the morning? But I used to... I'm still like so that I'd, now. <laughs> so I would sometimes pull an all-nighter and arrive bleary-eyed <laughs> and sit on a stool. And, um, and I noticed, actually, that Maggie, um, like a lot of painters... Um, she she moves around physically with her shoulders and her feet and her feet were it was almost like a tap dancer her feet were constantly uh, making a noise on the ground but her head was absolutely still a bit like a cheetah running after its prey you know the whole body moving but the head fixed so her head would be fixed on me and she'd be break uh, dancing like, yeah. yeah and and smoking heavily of course and chatting uh -huh. away uh, and uh -huh. it was a wonderful experience um the the the, the other um the, the the other friend who painted me was johnny yo who's a, a terrific yes. painter oh, yeah. as well uh, and he did a he did a lovely. He's doing some at the moment. I don't know if you've followed him on um, Instagram. I think it is, or maybe it's on YouTube. But he's he did one of Brian Cox, and he did one of Dexter Fletcher. Uh, he does a portrait of them there, obviously remotely, looking at. Oh wow! Uh, uh, and and he he's uh, he's he's terrific. I loved his um, his George Bush. I'm sure you've seen that. Have you? Is George W. I Bush? I, I can't. Uh, it's no, made I, I, up of t of cut out 
pornography photographs. Oh, yes, I do know it yes. because uh, Shauna Gavin, Francesca Gavin's sister, helps him in the studio. And oh, she, really? she helps, yeah. yeah, she helps make Cut all the pornographic porn. works. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And nice she's job. a collage artist in her own right, actually. <laughs> but um, that's funny. So I heard that when you were doing the um, sitting for the portrait with Maggie, you would often talk about Oscar Wilde as well. Yes, we would. We both uh, daughter of the myth, anyway. And she did a yes. She's done a. She did a sculpture of him. Have you seen it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yes. it's um, just Fargo's behind. Place. Yes, behind St Martin in the Fields Church, um, yeah. on on the way to heaven, as she always says, the nightclub heaven. Uh, it's called oh, a conversation, a conversation with Oscar, and you sit on, you sort of sit on the bench, and there's his head with a cigarette. Although the cigarette's always getting knocked off annoyingly, because he, <laughs> he he was a. A, a passionate smoker um and you sit and you ch- you chat to him yeah there's a in the in the picture that's in the national portrait gallery originally they were going to buy a painting i think like an oil painting but mm. for some reason they liked the psychological intensity of the charcoal drawing and yes. there's actually like a bow tie around your neck and I, right. I think it almost looks like two faces having a conversation and the it more does, i look at it? it it looks like punch yes. and judy or something it's really yeah, funny right. i don't know if You're that was right. deliberate or whether i'm just like reading something into it i'm being one of those no. annoying people but <laughs> no it's good you well do you know i mean <clears throat> i i uh, uh, the art the history of art teacher I had at, at school settled the question for me of um, of this reading things, reading too much into things. He said, um, he said, if you look at a hill in the Lake District, and or you look at a leaf falling down off a tree, and you see in the leaf falling down the futility of human hopes, or the way an ant moves up an ant hill, you. You can't overread a landscape, can you? Mm. He said this to the class because someone said, Sir, sir, don't you think you're reading too much into that painting? He said, The painting is what it is. And oh, yeah, no, they said that he said, I'm sure Leonardo or whoever the painter was didn't know that or did, wasn't thinking that. And he said, It's not a question of what the artist was thinking when they were making the piece any more than if God makes the, the Lake District. Uh, you're wrong if you see in the Lake District something about the history of humanity or the history of, um, you know, the history of your own personal hopes. When you look at the rise of the mountain and the fall of the water, you can see things because that's what human beings do. We we see things in metaphor and we read into them our own experience or some mm. something that we're carrying with us at that particular moment. You can't right. overread a landscape, and. You can't overread a painting, I don't think, either, can you? It, 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 right. The intention of the artist, in a sense, is irrelevant for that reason. Uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah I think so. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So we were I talking about Oscar Wilde. Obviously, he's played a oh, massive yes. part in your life. Mm. What do you think is Oscar Wilde's overarching effect on the art world in general? E- enormous, I think, um, because he he believed in art as being the primary moral force of humanity. And it's, uh, it seems like a, a, a kind of almost trivial thing uh, sometimes when he makes a great play about it. For example, um, when he was in America as a young man, uh, he, he did a tour, a lecture tour. He toured on, he, he gave lectures on Benvenuto Cellini, the Renaissance silversmith, and, and on... 
what he called the House Beautiful, probably the first time anybody's ever given a series of lectures on what we'd now call interior decoration, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and he, he gave these talks and <clears throat> he acquired quite a reputation because no one had ever heard anyone speak like this and speak with such passion and uh, a sense of the momentous importance of art. Um, and he was asked when he was in Chicago. Now, this is really interesting. You have to remember that we're talking about the 18, late 1870s, early 1880s, when America had just emerged from what was the bloodiest war that had ever been conducted on the planet, the American Civil War. Man for man was more deadly than any other conflict. And not only that, there was the incredible explosion of violence in the West, the massacre of the Native American populations, uh, and there was the rise of gang gang culture in Chicago and New York. This is sort of the period of the Gangs of New York movie. Kind of, it was all mm-hmm. happening. And Americans, intelligent Americans, uh, sensitive Americans, were wondering why that their country, which was only just 100 years old and was founded in the most harmonious, optimistic and idealistic terms, it was founded on enlightenment principles, of beauty and harmony and fairness and justice. It was going to be the ideal new country. Why was it so bloody? It's, it was a real problem that Americans were mm. constantly asking themselves. So here comes this famous, uh, or, or making himself famous, European intellectual in the form of Oscar Wilde. So they said to Mr. Wilde, do you have a view as to why America is so violent? And he said, oh, yes, I know perfectly well why you're so violent. And they said, why? He said, because your wallpaper is so ugly. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> like, like you, they laughed. And, of course, it is funny, but actually... It's so true, he, though. He was speaking out of the history of the aesthetic movement. Walter Pater, John Ruskin and other great figures had made the point about this is what I mean about the morality of art, the morality of beauty, is that mm. if a human being looks at nature, every single thing they see is kind of unconditionally beautiful, whether it's the Arctic uh, or the desert wastes or the, you know, the waterfalls and the oceans, everything is, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But so much, especially in late Victorian uh, world and America, so much of, of what man made was ugly, was smoke and de- degradation and filth, yeah. and Brown. meanness, yeah. and, un- yeah. and it was ugly. And his point is that if, if you belong to a species that thinks all it can do is uglify the world into which it was born, the beautiful world into which it was born, then you are born with a sense of guilt and, 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 and of not belonging, and of, and of course, violence and uh, self-hatred are the natural consequences of ugliness, that ugliness is a great sin. And I remember thinking this, I I wrote it in 2007. I wrote about Donald Trump's Taj Mahal, um, (laughs) the the, the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. Um, And I'm by no means the first to, 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 to make this point. Peter York made it in a very good book called The Houses of the Dictators. Um, he, he, he wrote a book showing the architectural tastes of Stalin, Hitler, Franco, 
Emperor Bacassa, all these various, uh, and the um, uh, the Ceausescu's in Romania, they all had the same monumentally terrible taste. Always golden marble, always foul. I mean, just despicable, grandiose, pretentious, uh, ugly. And Trump has exactly that taste. Um, and it's a shortcut to understanding meanness of character, meanness and, and lowness of horizons, and a lack of connection and understanding of the human spirit and of optimism and hope and love. All of these things, if you feel them, they are re reflected in your, in your sense of beauty and, and uh, of, of wanting to be connected to the beauty inside us and inside works that we make. That can be difficult. I'm not saying all art has to be pretty. By no means, but it has to be truthful. And as John Keats famously said, a, a thing of beauty is a, a thing of truth and a joy forever. That even a great work of art that's ugly is usually beautiful because it expresses a truth. And that's yeah. a beautiful thing for it to do. So even the spikiest, most tricksy sometimes and, and d difficult works of art, if they are truthful, there's a terrible beauty to them and that's a phrase of Yeats's isn't it a terrible beauty okay. um, so Wilde taught us that ugliness is a you don't need to have a Victorian the um, a, 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 a slightly later than Wilde but almost the same generation who died very young in the first world war was a, a T. Hume a poet and philosopher who talked about um capital letter morality and how the world had to turn its back on capital letter morality. And by that he meant that the spelling justice, mercy, truth in capital letters, um, because he said, um, T. Hume said that there are no nouns in the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is a verb. Everything is a process, is moving. Mm -hmm is changing. And he said, art has to reflect this, the movement of things. Uh, and it explains a lot of imagism and vorticism, I think, the early movements of Pound and Wyndham Lewis and those sort of artists mm. and mm. poets who were, uh, who were obsessed with the idea of capturing the movement of things. And, um, uh, and, and, and they all look back to Wilde as being the... The, the, the father of this, because Wilde always said, um, why, he, he attacked the press beautifully, he said, in the old days, in medieval days, we had the uh, rack, now we have the press. He said, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a small improvement, it's but not much of a one. Yes. Exactly. Right, right. Just on the subject of art, he said that, that journalists will never understand why art has to find new modes all the time. He said, it, it, it doesn't surprise them that scientists have to discover things new all the time. A scientist, they never say to a scientist, oh, why do you have to talk about this electricity? Why can't you go back to Isaac Newton? But to a mm. musician, they will always say, why do you have to play these difficult chords? Why can't you go back to Mozart? They don't yeah. understand that art is an even more modern project than science. Uh, uh, that's a thing Wilde said. And I think, and, and so Wilde was a huge influence on the modernists in that regard. He kind of gave permission to um, and and I'll 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 just read to you because this is a thing I carry around with me um, all, at all times, um, and it's um, it's 
Richard Ellman, who wrote Wilde's biography, it's the uh, and who who died before it could be completely finished. His daughter Lucy, who's a fine writer, um, he uh, uh, she finished it for him. But I will just oh come on, Stephen, I've got it written down because I want to get the words right. Here we go. Um, these are the last words he wrote uh, uh, in his book on Wilde. We inherit his struggle to achieve supreme fictions in art, to associate art with social change, to bring together individual and social impulse, to save what is eccentric and singular from being sanitized and standardized, to replace a morality of severity by one of sympathy. He belongs to our world more than to Victoria's. Now beyond the reach of scandal, his best writings validated by time, he comes before us, still a towering figure, laughing and weeping with parables and paradoxes, so generous, so amusing, and so right. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God, yeah, he to was like way to, yeah. yeah, Yeah, what a way to end the biography of someone. But yeah. I think that's so true. And, and he the, is famously um, famous for quoting, though all art is useless. Yes, but that's really that 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 is um, his point about it is that um, if you try and reduce art to function, then it, you're losing its point. The point, you know, you mustn't confuse it with good design. I mean, yes, a beautiful William Morris pot or wallpaper has function and is useful. And yeah. William Morris famously said, you should never have anything in your house that isn't beautiful and useful. But mm -hmm. art is useless. It is not a functional thing. It doesn't do anything. It is, uh, it's more important than that. And, and in a sense, uh, another way of looking at it is to say, we rely on useful things to be alive. Food, nourishment, heat and sex. But the things that make life worth living are great cooking and sex. Love. <laughs> no, love, not right. sex, Russell. It's yeah, love. But love as well. I've actually know. got this quote in front of me. Thank love you and much. sex. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? It's the, the irony Art is... Art and beauty and wine. They were other things yes, you mentioned before. and wine, exactly. <laughs> All those things that make life worth living are things that are useless. You don't right, need right. wine to live, but without it, life is pretty poor. And, and, and so Wilde is he's full of these kind of paradoxes and indeed parables. As, as Elman said, there's a favourite one of mine was... Because um, uh, Wilde's other great thing is that He's a bit like um, uh, who is it? Who says of Falstaff in in Henry the Henry the Fourth Part Two? Uh, he was not just a wit, but a cause of wit in others. Um, mm. And uh, Wilde made other people wittier. And um, you know, there are two types of extraordinary conversationalist and wit. There are those who make you feel six foot tall because they're so brilliant, or those mm. who draw you up to their own height who make you think and see things in new ways. And he was always like that. He said in his, in his letters, uh, De Profundis, to, to Lord Alfred Douglas from prison, he said, I taught people the colour of things. And, mm -hmm. and an example is he never used to say white wine. He used to say yellow wine. 
bring me yellow wine. And then he would look at it and say what it was really the colour of. That's actually topaz. That's a topaz-coloured wine. You know, he said it's important you see things as they are and say them as they are. But um, as parables go, here's a wonderful one he did once. Uh, someone was being very bitchy. And he suddenly said, he said, the devil was walking one afternoon in the Libyan desert and he saw some demons who were tormenting a monk, a holy monk of the church. And he watched for a while as these demons tried to turn the monk away from his church and his God. And then he approached and the demons fell to their knees in front of the devil and said, Master, and he said, tell me, what are you doing here? And they said, well, Master, we have been trying for 39 days and 39 nights to turn this holy man of God away from his church and his Christ, but he is truly faithful and he will not be tempted. We have offered him powers and principalities. We had offered him women and flesh and all the things that the heart might desire and the body might need, but he has turned us away. Truly, he is. He can never come over to our side. And the devil said, out of the way. And he leaned forward and whispered in the monk's ear for just a few seconds. And the monk immediately took the wooden cross from around his chest and broke it in two and tore his holy raiments and shrieked the most terrible curses against his God and Christ into the air. And the demons fell to the ground and said, Truly, Master, you are the one, Lord. What can you have said in just one sentence to have turned him away? And the devil said, it was very easy. I just told him his brother had been made Bishop of Alexandria. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? It's, oh, a, it's a truly perfect, <laughs> it's a perfect uh, parable. It, it's just Wilde yes. who, who saw a couple of people being bitchy around the table. And yeah. he, he, just, he just showed them that that is, <laughs> that's, that's perfect. He was very... He was very Christ-like in that sense. I mean, one can overdo it to some extent because, mm. you, know, you know, there's no need to. But he, he was like a, he had disciples, you know, Robbie Ross and William Rothenstein, all these mm. different figures who were in his orbit and who were part of his circle, some of whom betrayed him when his great fall came. And like Christ, he was despised and rejected of men, as the Bible puts it, and, and, he, and he fell. But he kind of rose again in as much as um, I can remember in the early days when I started to get sort of vaguely well-known and I'd be invited to talk at schools and colleges or whatever. And you might get invited by the students to go and have a drink in their rooms or whatever. And when I was a student, you'd have on the walls, you would have, I don't know, Karl Marx and Jimi Hendrix because... Mm. If the world was going to be saved, it would be saved by revolutionary politics or revolutionary music. Right. But I noticed as the 80s and 90s developed, you'd be far more likely to have posters of Einstein and Oscar Wilde on the walls. Because whether it was the death of John Lennon and, uh, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but somehow rock music had become compromised and commercialized out of any kind of revolutionary uh, status. And similarly, uh, left-wing politics had, had sort of collapsed as well. So instead, students were thinking that the future lay in the life of the mind, in art, in the case of Oscar Wilde, or in science, in the case of Einstein. And I, I, I mm. thought that was a very interesting kind of development in the way we think about things. 
Um, and I think it's still true. You still see Oscar's face on um, carrier bags from bookshops all over the world. Yes, um, yes, yes. yes. You know. How are you getting on with that campaign to turn uh, Red, in, Red in Prison into an art centre? Where it, That's where Oscar Wilde was jailed for two years, wasn't it, in 1895? That's right, exactly right, he was. Um, and uh, it, it, it was going very well, and the people of Reading were on our side, but then, unfortunately, the Ministry of Justice, apparently, uh, are not on our side. And they oh. think uh, it's, uh, that, that it shouldn't happen or something. That's the last It's such a I shame heard. because I, I went to the exhibition there that had Wolfgang Tillmans in it and a number of other leading artists. Oh, yes. It was such a brilliant exhibition. I went to school in Reading. So for me, it was like a really oh, weird sort of return home to see that exhibition. Did you go I went to the, on a bus from London. It was hilarious. Did you go to the Friends School? Did you go to I went the Friends to, School? No, no, no. I went to uh, Reading Bluecoat School. Oh, yes. Which oh, is in it's Sonning. It's just outside Reading, like but it's called yes. Reading Bluecoat yeah. School. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very um, funny. Yeah. And actually, I was thinking a lot recently about... I heard that you went to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which is also kind of not far from where I grew up. And there's That's a sculpture right. there that apparently is like an intersex sort of transgender sculpture from like ancient Rome yes. or something. That's right. Well, I... Um, I got to know a remarkable f uh, person called River Gallo um, mm -hmm. and uh, Seven Graham. And the names River and Seven are quite important because they're both intersex people. And mm -hmm. I hadn't, to be honest, known much about intersex. And I'd always, I'd try to sort of, uh, you know, the current rather heated debate about uh, about trans people and the... Uh, the rejection of them by some feminists and all this. It's all been very kind of unpleasant and ugly and yeah. unhappy making. But but one of the groups, uh, and there are far more of them than one might suppose, are people who are born with indeterminate sexual characteristics physically. Um, and there's a long history of their being mutilated, essentially, by their parents, uh, either through confusion or determination to push them in one direction or another. Um, and it so happens that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, uh, recognised intersex people and, and rather valued them, indeed venerated yeah. them to some yeah, extent. Exactly. Hermaphroditus like deities. Being, yes, exactly. Hermaphroditus yeah. being the most famous one, a conjunction of Hermes and Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. And, and uh, there are plenty of statues. And, uh, and a friend of mine called Zora, who, who, who lives in uh, Spain, and uh, Zora's a, um, a, a transition person rather than an intersex person, but she, um, uh, she's done a lot of work on this and discovered that the Ashmolean in Oxford and the Natural History Museum in Cambridge and all kinds of other museums do have quite a, a few of these statues and artworks oh, from the ancient cool. world that have been sort of banned, uh, have been kept in the cellar as being somehow dirty. The Victorians yeah. did not like the idea of them at all, partly because children are so fascinated by them and interested by them. And I, I have mm. to say, I remember, did you ever see Fellini's film Satyricon? Um, no. It's it's uh, it's a remarkable film. It's it's kind of golden age, Fellini, and it it contains uh, in it there's a a, a a genuine hermaphrodite, an intersex person who's always nude, who's in the film. It's set in Roman times, and um, I saw this film as about fourteen. I thought it was the most 
I don't know whether I thought it was sexually alluring or whether it was just curiosity, but I was absolutely obsessed by this character. Yeah. There was something so beautiful and tender and vulnerable and extraordinary about... Yeah. And it was a smiling... Uh, you know, this this person smiled as they moved through the um, through the film. And uh, uh, it's a... It's a very interesting thing. It challenges a lot of what we think about gender. And um, w with all this fuss about whether or not transitioned from one direction or another, people can call themselves that sex, it's worth remembering there are those who, who can certainly call themselves both sexes. And that yeah, seems totally, to be rather, yeah. rather a privilege, actually, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think we all just need to respect each other more as well and uh, would be, be kinder. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I just I just loved that that story though. I thought it was so amazing that old ancient sculpture and how forward thinking it is in many ways. Yeah, but yeah, also how you know, yeah, yeah. They're a lot less hung up. I mean, it is interesting that we are so peculiar about sex. I mean, the the history of Western art really is a history of us trying to release our pain and uh, discomfort at the at the sight of our own bodies. Um, mm. w w w when it comes to um, the most popular subjects in the religious... I mean, there's a period from... If you, you know, look at Western art from the end of the classical period, so after the Roman Empire has collapsed, there's what are known as the Dark Ages, and then slowly the 13th century moving onwards from Giotto and others, the, the Renaissance begins to happen. But, but for the first period of that, uh, the church has everything in its iron grip. Nothing can happen without the say-so of the Pope in Rome and of the, of the, of the priests and uh, monks and so on uh, around Europe who are in command of absolutely everything, including writing and reading and so on. So the only subjects that are possible for an artist like Giotto or Duccio or some of the earlier artists of the Renaissance are things like obviously Adam and Eve, which is a story mm. about man being ashamed of being naked. You forget that the first the first words almost uh, yeah. of, of God to Adam is, why have you got these fig leaves on? And, and Adam Shame. says, well, we were, we were naked and we were ashamed. And yeah, God's yeah. reply is brilliant. God says, who told you you were naked? And that's such a good question. Who on earth said to mankind that in the natural state in which you're born, it is a shameful thing that we're going to give a special name? Animals don't think they're naked. An animal isn't born and then immediately covers it up and says, oh, my God, I'm naked. It's an so extraordinary true. fact. That, and to a painter, of course, <laughs> for a painter who's excited about being able to render the human form, I mean, some painters want to paint landscapes, but the first impulse you'd have if you knew that you could make shapes with paint or some other medium to represent reality would be to do your mother, your brother, your sister, your lover, yourself. You'd mm, do pictures mm. of it. And so mm. the first pictures you do are the Garden of Eden. And there's, you know, you think of all those ones from the earliest Sienese ones all the way up to the famous you know, Lucas Cranach, Adam and Eve, and, you know... Uh, it's all about looking. We're looking at mm. each other and we're naked. And who are we? We're human beings. Look at yeah. us. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it's fascinating. And then if they, were, if they had a gay 
you could always tell. That's what I loved about about <laughs> looking at Renaissance art. You could always tell which painters had a gay cardinal as their patron because mm -hmm. they would commission them to do <laughs> lots of Saint Sebastians. Bastion, you know, you do a Saint yes. lots of because you got then you get a naked male form with. With, lits, with very phallic, you know, things piercing them. They're pierced mm. by darts everywhere. Yes, and they've yes, got yes. this look of agony. So Mantegna and other painters, you know, clearly were uh, pleasing their particular patrons by painting lots of male nudes. And other ones would try... And how far could you go with a female nude? Well, in the early days, uh, before the Renaissance really became the Renaissance, it was only... You could only do Mary. And Mary had to be in blue, in lapis lazuli blue, and, and, mm. and very clothed occasionally she could get a breast out to suckle an infant jesus but that's as far as you could go and then because the the rebirth the renaissance of greek learning you could have sandra botticelli doing famously you know the birth of venus so you could yeah. actually finally have a, a classical female nude uh, not a religious one and you could give her full value of breasts and hip and demure smile and and it could be erotic and it could be fleshy and it could celebrate human flesh for the first time, finally. And then, of course, if you remember, there was this terrible counter-reformation in Florence um, when, uh, not really the counter-reformation in the religious sense, I mean there was this, this move back, this sudden new prudishness when a man called Savonarola uh, appeared and ha held what was known as the bonfire of the vanities, a famous phrase because of the Tom Wolfe novel, but it was yes, actually yes. originally referred to uh, the bonfire of the vanities was Savonarola whipped up the public feeling in Florence against fleshy paintings, paintings of, of, of a sexual nature, uh, of a non-religious nature of any kind. Uh, and he burned paintings and he burned books and poems and there was this terrible moment when suddenly everything went backwards. Uh, and eventually Savonarola was, they thought, hell, to bloody hell. Actually, if you, you can still go to uh, Florence outside the Uffizi, is the place where the bonfire was held. And then wow. I think he himself oh, cool. was burned there. Yes, it's quite something. It's, a, um, it's an interesting story. But a lot of it is to do with this... Um, and. From the Garden of Eden, the other thing that became a great subject, Cranach. It's interesting, Cranach, because Cranach did the most famous Garden, Garden of Eden. Me too. And he also mm. did, I think he did about 20 judgments of Paris. And the judgment of Paris, if you remember, is the story of young Paris, the shepherd. Um, he's, in fact, a son of the King of Troy, but he doesn't know this at the time. He's a shepherd who's been chosen by Hermes and Zeus to judge between three goddesses, uh, uh, Hera, and uh, Aphrodite and and and, um, and Pallas Athene, or or Juno and Minerva and Venus in the Roman mm. names, and he gives the golden apple to the one that's the fairest. It's called the apple of discord. And and anyway, they, they each promise him something. Uh, they each appear before him, and Juno says, "I'll give you all power and 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 all um, worldly riches if you give me the apple." And then uh, Minerva, Pallas Athene, says, I'll give you wisdom and knowledge and understanding if you give me the apple. And then Aphrodite Venus comes and says, I'll give you the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of, Helen of Sparta, if you give me the apple. And she shows him a picture of Helen and he gives her the apple. And of course, Helen of Sparta comes over to Troy and becomes Helen of Troy. The Trojan War is there to bring her back and so on. So it starts the Trojan War. But what makes it such a great picture 
opportunity is that it's about looking. It's about us looking at him judging women. And, and it's the artist having the opportunity to draw three types of lush female, you know, the, 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 the wonderful <laughs> Juno-esque Juno, the, the fabulous Minerva uh, uh, Athena, the goddess of wisdom with her grey eyes and her, her handsomeness, her beauty in that sense, and then the utterly transcendent Venus. And you get the young boy, you know, the youth Paris, looking at them. And we're looking at him, looking at them. So again, it's like looking at the Garden of Eden where you're looking at nakedness, people looking at their nakedness. Here we're looking, it's a judgment, it's a beauty pageant, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very postmodern sort of subject in a way because it's yeah, all yeah, yeah. about looking. And of course, we stand there looking at these people looking. It's why we love self-portraits and the, you know, the Velasquez artist in his studio, isn't it? It's all mm -hmm. that fabulous reflexive nature of looking. Right. So I've in the current talking. climate, no, yeah. no, 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 you're, you're amazing. No, I'm absolutely fascinated. Just, I'm loving every minute of it. The oh, current, super inspiring. Oh, the current climate then with what's going on and, and like the rise mm. in mental health and everything. How important do you think art is right now as something that people can uh, look to and enjoy to get us through this? I, 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 th I think it could be immensely important. I'm always very hesitant about suggesting that any single thing is a cure or a perfect solution to mental health problems because, you know, my own experience plus, you know, my role as uh, president of MIND is n knowing that, you know, some of these illnesses are very, very serious and it's a bit like saying you can... Um, you know, walk off polio or something. You know, you can't, mm. right. you can't, you can't guarantee that a that a very severe episode of of depression or hypomania or or, or schizoaffective disorder or something is going to be solved by um, by looking at pictures or by going for walks or in communing with nature or listening to music or whatever. But nonetheless, you can say with some degree of confidence that. The experience of submitting yourself to looking at things and following the story of an artist and their different works through the uh, extraordinary opportunities we have online to do that now um, can do a lot, I think, to counter anxiety Mm -hmm. And that kind of annoying sense of being imprisoned and trapped because art can be a kind of window into not just the outer world, but into your own world. It can release you from feeling alone because artists usually just... The, the, the main experience of an artist is it's someone who's taking you by the hand and saying, come and, come and look with me, come and, come and look at this. Mm. And mm -hmm. they're your friend, you know, that even if it's a, a big foreign name like Kandinsky or something, you always think it's going to be some terrible intellectual challenge. <laughs> when you actually look at a picture by Kandinsky, you've never seen anything so welcoming and beautiful in your life. This is, this is a friend. Artists are, are friends who've travelled to places of the mind and, of, uh, uh, and, and are using their particular practice, their way with colour and form to... to to, to help us, to share, you know. And, and so I think it, art in that way is a, is a wonderful way of connecting. And, of course, if you go further back, it connects with history and, 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 and social culture and our ancestors and the fact that nothing is new. There are painters who've 
who've presented plagues and disasters and uh, that remind us and the, you know of the of the rhythm of human history is is filled with these troughs as well as peaks definitely mm-hmm. i i also think that making art and actually being creative like the act of being creative so arts therapy is also a very important sort of part now of of psychology and and helping people to like you know yes. actually be creative themselves to to express inner feelings and things like that i think you spoke a few years ago at psychart which is like a conference um to do with the That's nhs right. in east london i did you're absolutely right and and also i've done the odd thing with the kersler trust who yes, um, yes. encourage art in prisons and uh, it's amazing what uh, good can come out of those poor despairing places when prisoners realize that they have within them a divine spark it may not be yeah. as bright and shaped as a as a trained and uh, uh, practiced artist but it's the same order of thing the same creative impulse uh, right. the, the same spirit and i think if people who've only been taught that they are the junk of humanity can realize that they they have every reason to stand alongside other creative figures that's immensely Definitely. important yeah. feeling isn't it yeah, yeah, I think it's incredibly um, powerful as like a healing thing as well. Yeah. And just for the yeah. sense of self and um, self-worth and all those kind of things. Like, Yes, yeah, it definitely. is. It's that famous image of, um, you know, God's finger uh, touching Adam's in the Sistine Chapel. You know that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's almost a cliche as an image. Uh, but it's that, that force field between the, 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 the creator and the created. That spark is... Uh, is a living thing and, and it belongs to all of us in the same yes. way that life belongs to all of us, you know, and, and I think it's a well worth remembering. It doesn't mean that we're all artists and we're all going to be able to exhibit, but it means that we all share the same, that, that spark, I think. And also that we've all got a right to participate. You know, I think yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. You don't all have to be the greatest artist in the world, but just by being creative. It's like me this week, you know, I've been cooking for the first time in my life and cutting up onions and I've actually made meals and fed myself. And the sort of sense of self-esteem I have from it is unbelievable. Like, it's, a, it's so fun it's as well. It's a great and I, feeling, it's a isn't thing. it? Yeah. I know exactly Whereas for someone like mean. David Hockney, I think he's had a famous quote that said, I smoke for my mental health. So he... He yes. like, um, like wild, <laughs> just <smoke> yes. instead. <laughs> and, and it's very important as well. I mean, I think there's a, um, uh, with art as much as with almost any other subject, there's a, a strong feeling some people have that, that they'll never catch up, you know, that they, they can't be sure what century Leonardo lived in or, or Constable lived in or whatever, mm. and they've never been sure of this, and, and therefore they've missed the bus. Right. And, and no, I think it's, it's really important. Yeah. yeah, it's really important not to, let, you know, to, to encourage people not to feel that. You don't have to have heard of Ghirlandaio in order no. to, to understand you how to You can just jump on at the next stop, can't you? Exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Jump on at the next stop. And, and the painting is, you're in the lucky position that when you look at a painting that... Uh, it's fresh for you. You are, it, it, you know, every painting is a naked newborn thing for you rather than mm. you're just some rattled old queen like me going, ah, yes, there's, the, <laughs> <laughs> there's that Donatello again. Oh, <laughs> you're not old. No, bless um, you. <laughs> <laughs> just older. So, <laughs> just a queen Stephen so um, yeah. we ask every guest that comes on two very important mm. questions the first one is if you could do an art heist you could have any work of art in the world to yourself an imaginary art heist what would it be and why 
Oh, that's so good, isn't it? Well, I mean, I I think I would go to that uh, Velasquez Pope Innocent actually. Oh, really? Because it's yeah, it's huge and magisterial, and it would be such a an up yours to uh, to the world. <laughs> it's, it's that's uh, currently or, in Rome, isn't it? Yes, or there's one which is again an artist I had the pleasure of knowing, though not very well, but enough to sort of give a hug to when I yeah. met him. He, he died a few years ago. Uh, Howard Hodgkin. Um, oh yes. Um, there's there's a painting of his called A Bed in Venice. I think it's called. It's green and mm. red, like a lot of his work, and it is so beautiful. It's just oh. because it's that lickable paint. You know, you just feel you could um, absolutely. I'll get it, you know, dive inside it. it, it it's it's just a, a thing of absolute beauty. It's a, it's almost abstract. It's it, you can see that yes, maybe there is a red bed there. I think it's a bed in a hotel room in Venice. I think is the idea of it, and it's just huge amounts of green and red. But it's what really was he lovely. like? He was a charming man. He was a very close friend of a friend of mine called Simon Hopkinson, who's a chef who who founded the Bibendum restaurant and uh-huh. is a great collector and was a friend of Francis Bacon's and, and of John Edwards. And actually John gave him, a, who was Francis's lover, and who gave um, uh, uh, um, Simon a couple of Francis pieces that he has in his flat, which I'm very envious of. Um, And uh, Simon, it was Simon who introduced me to Howard. And um, yes, Howard's sweet, modest, um, gentle, shy, funny, or everything you'd hope, really. Um, I've got a really weird memory, Stephen, that Mm. you and I were on Tracy Emin's, like, uh, rooftop kind of balcony thing in East London, and that you bought a Howard Hodgkin print from me. Because I worked with Howard with Carl Freeman for competitions, and I think I think you bought one of the water or something. Water, yes, exactly. Swimming, I did. It's a gorgeous one. Yes, I I did. You forgot that. It's just come back to me now. That's hilarious. Ah, yes, it was. Here we go. Small world. Do you collect a lot, Stephen? Um, No, to be honest, Uh, I usually just people I know a bit. so I, I, that sounds a sort of strange way of putting it, but I, I you know, I, I think I might as well. So I've got quite a few by um, um, by Maggie um, because she's, you know, just there's something about her. She's just so great. And Annie Kevin's. Um, I've got a squid. I've got um, lots of lots of um, uh, sea uh, mm. uh, paintings. She's done um, and sunrises, dragon sunrises. They're called. That oh Maggie wow! Has that, that are rather fun. And Annie Kevin's. Do you know Annie mm-hmm. Kevin's mm-hmm. work? Yep, yeah, yep, yep. Um, yeah. I've got. She she did a series of. Uh, they sound rather depressing. She did. She was interested in in people with mental health problems. So she did Patty Duke and and Ludwig van Beethoven and Judy Garland. And I've got those the, those right. three portraits, which oh, nice. I have here in this house in Norfolk, actually. And they're they're lovely. They're, she got very upset because they're they're oil paintings, but they're, she they're very loose and very. I don't know. She uses a lot of. Um, uh, linseed, I guess, or something to thin the oil. So they, mm. you would swear they were watercolour, but they're oil. Mm-hmm. But she needs a particular kind of paper to do them on. And uh, she told me uh, that she that that she had bought the last stock of that paper in the world. That's right. And yeah, she yeah, wouldn't yeah. be able to do story. any more of the. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think she's delightful. Uh, I, I like her work a lot, and. Uh, She's married to uh, um, 
Will Kevins. Will, isn't Will yeah, Kevins. Yeah, right. R- Russell Will, yeah. was actually in his music video I, I a long did a time music ago. Music video for him. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's a cartoonist as well, isn't he? That's he's, right. Yes, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, fascinating yeah. guy. Yeah. No, they're, they're a good lot. Um, but uh, otherwise, I, I also collect photographs a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly uh, fond of uh, sort of old twenties photographs. Oh, really? I've got a lot of um, yeah. Well, um, um, you know, kind of of of, of people, of people. Uh, I mean, not photographs for the sake of it. I guess uh, what you call portrait photographs, really. Um, so, uh, what's his name? Um, no, it's going out of my head now. Um, you know, the, the uh, designer and photographer, society uh, designer. Cecil Beaton. Cecil Beaton, thank you. Oh, so I've got a lot you. of Cecil Beatons, uh, ones cool. of uh, Truman Capote and mm. uh, no those way. sort of figures. Yeah, he's got a fabulous oh. one of Truman Capote uh, leaping up into the air. It's a great photograph. And of um, he, he did a good one of Augustus John. Uh, and Gwen John in the same shot. And uh, actually, one, one of Walter Sickert, very extraordinary one of Sickert in his garden, looking very sort of depressed, which is rather fun. Because uh, And a marvellous one of W.H. Uh, Auden uh, mm. reaching into a tobacco jar with his... T- <laughs> you know how Auden looked when he became quite old, with his incredibly mm-hmm. lined face, looking mm-hmm. a bit like Chief Joseph or one of those old um, Native American warlords with a really lined face. <laughs> well, in the in the early 60s, um, uh, they were bringing out the new editions called... The two editions called the, the English Auden and the American Auden that sort of more or less divide the time he, he went to over to America in 1939 and sort of stayed there. And the, the, the English poems before that, the American afterwards, and they wanted a new uh, drawing of him to be on the front of this, Faber and Faber. So Faber, uh, Tom Elliott, T.S. Eliot, um, invited this new young artist called David Hockney, who everyone was talking about, mm-hmm. to come and meet W.H. Auden and see if maybe he could do some drawings. And he did. He did some famous line drawings of Auden. But <laughs> apparently when... <laughs> When Hockney arrived at the party and he, they pointed to Auden in the corner, uh, Hockney said, blimey, if that's his face, what can his scrotum look like? <laughs> oh, my God, true. But, oh, my God. Isn't that wonderful? Because <laughs> his face looked like a scrotum. Yes, yeah. it did, basically. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So uh, the other yeah. question we ask every guest, mm. moving swiftly on, um, yeah. is what is your favourite colour? Yellow. Oh, I think oh, yellow. Wow. Yes, I know. It surprises yellow? people. I don't know. It just makes my heart give a little leap sometimes when I see I things in yellow. When you said it, um, you were like, yeah. yellow. It, yes, it just... <laughs> <laughs> There's something splendid about it. I mean, you know, there are, and of course you can look at certain paintings which are famous for their bits of yellow. Klimt was very good on yellow and a few others were, were sound on yellow. But I, and obviously Van Gogh had a, a terrific sense of yellow. Um, but it's not really for, as a painting colour, just, uh, it, it, yeah, the, uh, that tends to be my answer. When I was young, it was purple. Uh, but uh, I think, to be honest, yellow is is the one that just does make me feel cheerful more than any other. I need other. to send you um, dandy, uh, not dandelions, um, the other ones, daffodils. <laughs> oh, daffodils, yes. Indeed. Or sunflowers. Yellow, I actually took, I took sunflowers someone's house once and they were like, you can't give sunflowers as a gift. 
it's incredibly rude. You have to leave them in the kitchen. And I was like, Is that okay. right? It was really Oh, God. Weird. Yes. I mean, it's I like, like Lily's. Seriously. I mean, certainly can't die, give... isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Lily's is definitely. Bad. Yeah, but Lily's oh, I... is like a funeral thing. But like giving someone <laughs> sunflowers is hardly offensive. I got no, like really berated for it. That's charming. Yeah. I think so. Oh, too. that did remind me. I wanted to, if we probably are winding up, because I've actually, not that I've got anywhere to go particularly, but I mustn't <laughs> abandon my husband for such long stretches of time. But mm. um, I want, I did want to end on, on one of the most beautiful things I ever heard, which was, um, as you probably know, um, J- Jacob Epstein um, did the um, sarcophagus, the tomb of Oscar Wilde, um, yes. uh, which is in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. He died in Paris, of course, in exile. And it's a beautiful sphinx. Uh, um, and anyway, a few years ago, the Irish government gave quite a large sum of money to Père Lachaise to restore it. And the reason it needed restoring, I think, is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. This man who died ashamed, or at least believed that he should be ashamed, was told to be ashamed, and certainly believed to some extent that his reputation was forever ruined. He died hated and the centre of one of the biggest scandals of his time. His tomb had to be restored because the marble of the sarcophagus was eroding on account of the number of times it had been kissed. That it was so often kissed, people would come to that tomb and kiss it in reverence for his memory and his spirit, that it was actually rotting away the marble. And and if I believed in in, in spirit still being alive, and, and I do enough to be able to say, Oscar, do you hear that? Do you hear that? People are kissing your tomb. You probably think about their breath melting, yeah. melting the marble, all of that. Like, Get away from me, you stink. You can't do anything. Oh, that is beautiful, though. It's very poetic. Your lack, your lack of romantic sensibility does a great credit, Russell. <laughs> we got one more question before you go. Is yeah. oh, what yeah. have, you, have you worked out if you have a hidden lockdown talent, something you've worked out since we've been in quarantine you never knew before? Well, possibly. It's a walking cliche of one. I would say uh, baking. I mean, it's not something I've done before, but I have made some rather startling banana bread, sourdough and soda <laughs> Like bread. every other guy on Instagram. Like, well done, banana know, bread. including me. <laughs> I feel like showing off my hot crust buns. Such a cliche. <laughs> but the thing I most enjoy, and this is just so anal, um, I'm short of actually pushing it up my bottom, it couldn't get more anal, and that is that I have on the, ki- on the side in the kitchen, I have about nine tiny little pots, little ramekins. And when mm. I cook something, so even, you know, like, like if it's tomatoes now, I've taken to doing what chefs do, which is putting the tomatoes in hot water, taking the skin off and taking the seeds and the centre bit out and then dicing them into tiny little uh, squares. And then I have a bowl of those in the fridge. And in the morning, I make a French omelette and have those cheese and... Uh, I grate the cheese and then uh, and then have those little tomatoes. But also, if I make any meal, even before I even think of cooking, I get all the ingredients and prep them into the little bowl. So I grate the garlic into this little bowl. I chop the onions mm-hmm. finely using all that knife skill stuff that you can learn online. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty pathetic, but it's a good way <laughs> of using time up. <laughs> 
Yes, it um, takes time. It sounds very cute. Exactly. I remember I a funny story you told me once is that you ordered a bottle of gin online, a bottle of tonic, and then two cucumbers, and it yes. turned up, and 22 cucumbers turned up because yes, you, you right. pressed... And then they, they would have delivered, they'd have been like, 22 cucumbers, who are they going to? Stephen Fry, <laughs> don't ask, just send them. <laughs> it was, it's so true. Oh, God, I'll never forget that. It was so stupid. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Don't ask. Just Don't ask them. Yes. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, my God. Well, on that wonderful happy note, um, I would yes. like to say thank you so much, Stephen Fry, for coming on Talk oh my Art. God, it's been a it has been a, a joy real to spend this pleasure. hour and a half with you. And, and congratulations um, on this podcast. It's very important to have something like this, and it's a delight. Well, actually, I've just been listening to your Seven Deadly Sins, which is your own oh, hit you. podcast, which is out now. And um, the first episode of that was hilarious because you're sort of saying that most podcasts or you know news sources nowadays are kind of either slagging someone off from one side or from the other side, and no one actually does anything for the soul or for kind of coming up with a solution. Or you know, yes. so your Seven Deadly Sins is definitely useful. I think people need mm-hmm. to listen to it. Thank you very much. That's very and good of you. And they need Stephen, to listen to this too. <laughs> Stephen and Russell are both um, acting together for um, a charity and it will be at understudyplay.com and there's going to be two performances or, or two parts which mm-hmm. are streaming, I think, and you pay £5 for a ticket on the 20th and the 27th of May. Mm-hmm. And it's also starring previous talk art guest Sarah Hadland from yes. the wonderful TV show Miranda, and we love her. Um, and if yeah, the so read-through the is anything to go by, the read-through, then Russell is on top form, as is Sarah. My job is just being a narrator, so all I have to do is just, just talk. <laughs> You're like God. You are our own, you are God's voice coach. <laughs> Russell, what's your character called? Because isn't it an artist's name? Stephen. Oh, no, Stephen, um, what's his name? McQueen. Uh, McQueen. McQueen, yes. Yeah. Stephen McQueen, exactly, yeah. yeah. It made me laugh. I was like, he's actually playing a character with an artist <laughs> yeah. He takes art everywhere he goes. So The exactly. Understudy by David Nichols, and you can stream that, and it will raise funds for charity, I think, to help actors. Yes, you know? yes that's, yeah, right. Wonderful. that's right. Well, anyway, thank all of you for listening. Images, and we'll images are on Instagram at Talkar, and you're on Instagram, obviously, Stephen. Yes, Stephen Fry, actually. Um, I'm currently doing my collection of ties, which sounds weird, but mm. it's very, I think, rather interesting. I Each day I find a new tie and talk about it. And it's surprising how even something as mundane and usually considered rather businesslike and dull and drab as a tie can be a window into social, cultural and romantic history. I cannot so, wait uh, for the v Show, yeah, about the VNA show, Stephen. It uh, may happen in 2021. I'm, I'm also looking forward to your new cookbook, it's going to be fascinating. Um, <laughs> and yours, Rob, obviously, because you're yeah, uh, no, taking indeed. over now. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do a podcast too called The Unchef because I'm just so talented now at cooking. Oh, that's a good title. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll be back very soon. Right, <laughs> thanks, thanks everyone. Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. Lots of love. Bye. Real pleasure. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 